Hello, and welcome to Festival of the Mind. In this episode, Professor Peter Jackson from the Institute of Sustainable Foods and artist Anthony Bennett discuss their collaboration, Authentic Corpse, based on research and interest in the cultural meanings of food. Hello, I'm Peter Jackson, and I'm sitting here with the artist Anthony Bennett in his studio in Persistence Works, and we're going to talk together about our collaboration on a piece of work called Authentic Corpse. So, Anthony, do you want to just say a little bit about how we first met? I've worked with academics for quite a long time, since about 2008, I suppose. In 2015, I did a project for the Festival of Mind with Professor Duncan Cameron, who was a, is a microbiologist, and he got me very excited and inspired about soil, its future, what it does, the fact that we owe our entire existence to it, and that became a host, host of other collaborations uh, over the years, exhibitions and all sorts. Then last year, the Institute for Sustainable Food organised a sort of online festival called Planet to Plate Festival, and for which I showed a, did a performance uh, with Giselle, uh, the other Giselle, the drag queen, where we sort of talked about emissions from agriculture, uh, nitrous oxide emissions. And that's when I first met Peter, who was co-presenting it with Duncan Cameron. And uh, the rest is history, as you say. I was in the audience that day at Planet to Plate, and I was really inspired by what Anthony was doing. And most of his collaborations to that point were uh, with natural scientists. I'm a social scientist, and I thought, yep, I'd like to get involved in some of that. So we had a series of conversations which quite quickly settled on this idea of authentic corpse. So I did a book called Food Words quite a few years ago now, and the idea of food words was to take a series of words or terms related to food and to show, rather than the sort of single definition of those words, how those words sort of shifted over time and in different contexts, and how some of them were used commercially, some of them academically, some in policy terms. So the sorts of words were uh, taste, sustainability, quality, tradition, and authentic or authenticity. And that's such a rich word in terms of how it's used that we had a conversation about it. And one of my thoughts about authenticity is that people make claims that something is authentic and they claim this is authentic and by uh, implication something else is fake or bogus or not the real thing. And you could think for example about the way in which almost every Indian restaurant in Britain uses the word authentic. This is authentic Indian food. Although it doesn't take long to think about it to make you realise that it's not the food that people eat authentically back home in India for example. It's a kind of hybrid food. It's a food that's been made up, that's mobile, that travels. So lots of claims to authenticity are like that. They have a commercial meaning. Uh, they reflect differences of power uh, by race or by gender or whatever. So we got talking about that one evening. Things come from a very sort of dark place inside of me, really. And 
a thing came into my head, which was about kitchens and operating theatres and morgues and all sorts of odd things. This idea that Peter was talking about, I just, I just imagined all these, the opposite of a full belly is an empty belly and then starvation and all sorts of dark stuff came into my head. So the word corpse popped up and then thinking about the sort of parlor game where you create a, a body, which is sort of emaciated, called exquisite corpse or consequences or the people know it by. They, it all sort of fit together and within minutes of sort of this title, Authentic Corpse, just sprang into mind and it seemed to cover so much that we wanted to talk about. It's something we keep coming back to every time we meet and it started off a, a very social sort of meeting thing. Instead of meeting in Peter's office, we sort of met in a pub and we waxed lyrical and went off in all sorts of different directions. I think about waste quite a lot, you know, when I was growing up. And I think when Peter were growing up, when we were very young, we didn't waste anything. Poor people don't waste anything. But now we can waste if we want. And, you know, waste is a very middle-class problem. And I brought all sorts of issues like that into the, the pot. So a lot of it is about access to high-end stuff, people with money, people who can order online, people who can go to high-end restaurants, or, uh, and then right through to people who are subsistence. Yeah, they need subsistence farming to exist, or, or they need free food, yeah, right through to contemporary food banks sort of thing. So there's this whole, well, you move through all sorts of financial demographics with the world of food, and that related to my earlier work with Duncan Cameron, about microbiology and plants growing in the first place and the fact that we owe our entire existence to a six-inch layer of topsoil and the fact that it rains. Uh, the alternative to that is we'll die. So again, this brings us back to the corpse idea and of the human race lying on a, on a trolley in a morgue. So that's really consistent with what we're doing in the Institute for Sustainable Food, which is all about thinking of the future of the planet and how we're living kind of beyond our means at the moment, certainly in the global north, and thinking about food security and the ways in which science and social science can try and help meet the challenges of food security and sustainability. But the, the artwork that's emerged from this collaboration is also, I think, really consistent with the idea of food words. Things don't have a single meaning. Their meanings are mobile. They're shifting. Um, we're not going to tell anyone how to think about food. It's not that sort of didactic, healthy eating message you get from lots of uh, health advice and government bodies. It's very much juxtaposing images and asking people to sort of find their own way through a series of familiar images and challenging questions we want to ask. And I think this really, that's what's excited me about working with, with you, Anthony, is that um, lots of art science encounters simply illustrate a piece of science research. And I think we've gone beyond that. I think the collaboration has found really creative ways to not just translate a book, food words, into a 
installation and artwork, but to sort of raise all sorts of questions about the things that academics find interesting and that artists want to sort of challenge the world to, to think about, to revision. It's also about culturally how, you know, someone who's, you know, I'm an artist, you know, I grew up in the black country working class kid. It's why I actually want to go into different areas because speaking with Peter were great and I've read part of his food works book and things like that, but I, I react against actually using Peter's food words. But my instinct is to do what, say, Ronnie Barker would have done with a food word, change it so it's daft, but actually people know what the word means or Monty Python or different things. So the words that appear on the screens in the installation, you'll see them and read them as a, a piece of comedy, really, comic. Peter produced a list, I asked him to produce a list of 40 words that he, you know, has studied, that uh, he teaches about, he talks about, discusses about academically. And then my instinct is to sort of change them, but not irrecognisably change them. There's different ways, like the way people pronounce words. And like back home when I was growing up in the black country, we didn't say meat, we said mate. And there's all sorts of jokes, local jokes, you know, you know, playing with the word mate when you really mean meat. And then posh people say something different. Instead of saying hunger, I changed that to hanger. That's how like a very posh person to say hunger. So, but it can't be anything else in this context but hunger. Words I've used from the Urban Dictionary, words that, I mean, a bit, bit naughty, but the word, instead of using the word kitchen, I use the word bitching, but it's so close. Then again, in this contextually, it can't be anything else but a kitchen. It's not a bitching, but it's, it's just playful. And I help people with the sort of juxtapositions of these words and the images and and the con context of this installation, that people will make up their own links, maybe make up their own words. It might offend a few people, I don't know, but I think it, it creates a sort of cultural soup, I suppose, of, of words and images that, uh, yeah, people can create something of their own sort of culturally, I suppose, something that is unique to them and maybe leave the show with something going on in the head that maybe they don't understand what's going on, but hopefully it leaves something within them that they'll take away. And because I suppose it's what I do with a lot of my work. I try to leave doors open for people so people can find their own way in. Whatever happens once they're in is up to them, really. But the way you describe that playfulness around some of these words really resonates well with how academics study this kind of stuff. So food is something we can be really serious about. It's a real political challenge. It's got all sorts of scientific aspects to it, but it's also mundane, everyday, embodied. You know, everyone has an opinion on food. 
you know, especially people who haven't got enough of it, but also people who, who are kind of really into food and gourmets or part of the slow food movement or whatever. So food is both that sort of serious, challenging political thing, but also something around which we need to be playful and creative and sort of almost celebrate the everyday nature of food. The, the sort of side of that is what people choose to believe about food that they buy, consume or whatever, because the reality is most of the time very, very different. And part of the inspiration, again, the original authentic corpse thing came that Peter was telling me about ghost kitchens, also known as dark kitchens or cloud kitchens. And they really sort of came to the fore during COVID. Rich people couldn't go to their Michelin, favorite Michelin star restaurant, but they still wanted to eat that food. They could afford it. They didn't want to cook it themselves. They couldn't cook it themselves. So they could pick up their phone, go through different apps, and they could go to things like Deliveroo or Just Eat or whatever. And these companies had done this new deal with high-end restaurants whereby people could order that food that is, you know, created by some, say, a Michelin-star chef. But it actually didn't come from that restaurant. What happened is that these ghost kitchens were set up, which are big industrial kitchens on industrial estates, but they are worked in by chefs, sous chefs, all sorts of things who would normally work in the restaurant, perhaps, or you know, might work in there one day a week and the rest of the week they work on an industrial estate. They're using the same uh, recipes, the same ingredients, but there's just the chef isn't there. And basically that all gets packaged up. And say you've got, you could have 20 Michelin star kitchens in an industrial estate, and all the delivery person's got to come is come in the bike to the output gate, the, the out tray, and take up, you know, in this particular geographical area where they have to take it, and just load all this stuff onto their motorbike from different, and then take them door to door to wherever's ordering them, and everybody's happy. It's a really great example, isn't it? Because the, the recipe is authentic, in inverted commas. You know, the meal is what you'd get in the Michelin-starred restaurant, but it's created in completely different circumstances in an anonymous industrial estate uh, by someone who isn't particularly qualified in, in cooking, certainly not to Michelin-starred level. And yet it becomes a way of consuming that kind of food in an almost sort of fictional, made-up, imagined kind of way. So it's, it's sort of authentic, but it isn't. And that's exactly what uh, I think those are the kind of ideas we're, we're playing with yeah. in this. Parallel to that, there was another thing we were talking about at the same time, and it was related to this sort of app culture. You know, with the Institute for Sustainable Food, you know, I think one of the things I'd like everyone to do is to think about where their food comes from, how it originated. But it's like in my own, I, I see my own son, you know, he comes home from work, he's sort of 24, and his go-to thing is apps on his phone. And even though there's food at home, he doesn't want to think about even asking how you cook something or his mother to cook it or whoever to cook it. He just wants to, you know, go through the app, decide what he wants, pay the money. 20 minutes later, there's a knock on the door. He gets it, 
he takes it up to his room, he's back on his game and he eats the food. And so this is part of a, a sort of young people's culture, this immediacy where you get something to sort of fill your belly and you don't have to think about it. And it's so different from the, the way in which food is represented in popular culture and in the you know, media and politics. And whatever. The family meal is the thing. The Sunday lunch is what we celebrate. We all sit down together and eat food together. And the reality for your son and for lots of other people is completely different from that. They don't want to celebrate a family context. They don't want to eat at the same time or the same meal uh, as you and your partner. It's much more kind of individualised. It's much more instant. So that idea of you know, family life being recreated through food is, is certainly uh, somewhat mythical, I would say. Again, as when we were discussing these things early on, Peter introduced me to this concept of fictive kin. It's, a, it's this idea that uh, people subscribe to this idea of a family unit which doesn't exist. One way Peter described it, so in Sheffield there's a, a road where loads of sort of drug addicts and winehouse hang out and they come together to share whatever food they've got or cans of booze or whatever and they sit round and they create this like little family and they all share their talk, drink, get pissed, shoot up, whatever they do and they create this imaginary bubble and it's the same bubble that we all want to be part of. It's like they create the roles of mum and dad or children, or someone's cooking and someone's clearing up or whatever. There's sort of a division of labour that's similar to a family setting, but in a situation where people are not in you know, a stable nuclear family. So the fictive part of it is they're kind of creating an idea of kinship which models the idealised nuclear family. And I think situations like that in prisons or in homeless people's hostels or whatever, you can see examples of that, which kind of show the sort of cultural power of food and family being played out in quite different settings. We've been on to talk about all sorts of things, but Peter just mentioned prison food. That plays a role in installation as well, because we talk about places where you are given food. You don't really order it or whatever, you're given it. And that might happen in a prison. It might happen in a school, you know. It might happen in an old people's home. Again, these have sort of implications as far as kin go. And uh, I'm fascinated by how that, that food is sort of, comes from such an industrial place. It's not about choice or anything. It's about budget and, but, but it's about, Provision is about getting from A to B. It's, it's satiating somebody or filling somebody's belly. And it, it might not even taste very nice, but it has a role in society and family and all sorts of things that uh, I find sort of fascinating. And in those institutional settings, food is a really, really important part of the day. It, it marks particular times. It's about routine. If the food comes late, well, there might be a riot in a prison, but in their care home, it's almost the same. You know, that's what punctuates the day. That's what gets you out of your room and downstairs to talk to other people in a quasi-family setting. And if your food's late or it's cold or there's not enough of it, all hell breaks loose. So food is quite politicised or 
emotionally charged, even in those quite mundane settings. Yeah, and opposite to that, and the same conversation was about when there's too much food, but there's lots of waste. And if you imagine, in, you know, a food fight, you know, there's so many things on in films and stuff where there's lots of food left on the table, something happens and everybody starts throwing it at each other. And which brings us into ideas of too much and waste. And there's so many people are trying so many things to address issues around food waste by doing sort of food kitchens where people pay what you want. And oh, there's, a, there's so many different ways that people are trying to address the problem. When we come around to this, we get very political, really, because capitalism couldn't exist without waste, because it needs it. If Jamie Oliver says you need a certain ingredient, the supermarket has got to have it somewhere in storage, uh, you know, ready. And, uh, you know, if it doesn't get on TV in some TV chef's recipe, it rots. I want to talk about gravy before we finish, because oh, yeah. gravy was one of the conversations we had in the pub one night, and it really works as a sort of thing that brings food together, but it's also uh, part of the installation. If you get to see the installation, you'll, you'll see that. So tell us what got us started on, on gravy, Anthony. Peter told me all sorts of things about his research on the books. We talked about travel. You know, we talked about food in, in a global context, but the one thing he didn't really touch on is the stuff that is left over, the stuff that's left in the bottom of a pan, that, you know, the bones, the, the stuff that is even a waste in an industrial sort of setting. And all over the world, people who've got nothing, they use that stuff they turn it into something that is incredibly tasty. And <laughs> lots of stuff, it becomes like the thing that people can't eat their meal without. It, it lubricates in all sorts of conceptual ways. Yeah, this concept of gravy became very important. And, and Peter, when we're discussing it, you know, you say, well, I don't know if there's ever an academic study on gravy. And that was like, that even reinforced the, the concept for the artwork because it seemed to be more and more important and how we take it to things like that for granted. Uh, but it's incredibly important, you know, it's rich. It's, it's reduced things that are unrecognizable, but we choose not to think about that. We choose to taste. And in the food industry, people, I think people in general know far more than you can ever give them credit for about where their food comes from, industrial processes, e-numbers, all sorts of things. They know this stuff, but they choose not to think about it. They just taste it. When you're talking about sustainability in the future, that's a really, really interesting concept. What people will choose in the future, you know, will they choose, I mean, some people on the TV will say, oh, it's insects of the future. Some people, you know, and how will people respond to that? You know, will they ignore it? You know, will they want it processing so it looks like something else? The thing that was interesting about gravy for me was the way in which it's definitely neglected academically, but in popular culture, just think about all those TV adverts for Oxo and Bisto that go right back to the 
our bestow sort of evocation of the smell of it, but also the real strong family and domestic context of Katie preparing a meal for the family. They all rush round and they thank her and they all bond around the meal. And it's the gravy that kind of holds the family together as well as holding the meal together. Even though in this case, it's quite an industrialized, you know, little powdered cube you pour boiling water on or whatever. It's not the sort of gravy from the bottom of the pan from the roast meal. It's a kind of industrialized, commercialized equivalent, but still really charged with those kind of gendered and class notions about what it means to be a real family. You mentioned the future just now, so shall we finish on that? Let's think about the kind of collaborations that might be between us or between artists and scientists in the future. And I, I think it's fair to say we don't know. It could go in lots of different directions. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think right now in 2022, you know, sort of artists in particular are seeing stuff around them that is quite shocking you know we, this is about food but people are outraged by all sorts of issues around plastics around all sorts of contemporary issues that people are trying to get their head around and the people with solutions who their day-to-day -day work is addressing these problems are academic it's happening in universities all over the planet and you know whether we get to some solutions or not is not the point. The research that's been funded is part of it. Now, for so long, for probably the last 20 years, artists' engagement with academics or scientists, artists have been brought in at the very end, and all they're given is really some images and some text, and they create some sort of like pretty picture that hopefully sums up something. But, but what is going on right now is hopefully artists getting involved in the research at a very early stage. And so artists snap out of the idea of what contemporary art is for the last sort of 50 years, whereas there's a gallerist who tells you what to do and they market you and they won't really let you change what you do. Whereas the way I like to work is how academics work, whereby if evidence changes, you don't waste your time going off on that. You take where the evidence, as it presents you, to take you into the future. And it's this being embedded with researchers, scientists, academics, as an artist, and being inspired by these things that happen. The word I use is neoterically. It's like, as it happens, somebody has a notion or an idea. It happens in the pub all the time. You know, you sit down, have a pint, you relax, and things just start sparking. And you can create, not at the end of the research, but while it's actually happening from day to day, and you give yourself as an artist the power to actually say, well, no, I'm stopping there, I'm going this way instead. Something completely different. And that's changed my sort of practice as an artist incredibly. And in, you know, my thoughts of the future, I've got loads of ideas. You know, for, but it's all about, it's not about art galleries. It's about artists and societies, about collaborations, bringing, you know, using our skills for engagement, creating images, bringing academics back into the city, back into the fold, conversations around, we growers, people who grow this stuff, you know, we're not even debating, but we're struggling with all these ideas. But the only way we're going to 
So, and it's now, is everybody coming together and helping each other? And the artists are ideally placed to bring people face to face with complexity, not explain it, but just introduce people to complexity and let them go take what they want. So that's my idea of where I want the future to go for art and academic collaborations. And that works really well for us in the Institute for Sustainable Food as well. We write our academic papers, we do our research in the lab or in the field, we engage with policymakers and whatever, but a really important part of what we do and what sets us apart, I think, is what's called the art science encounter. That may be science, it may be social science, but these kind of conversations really take our academic work in new directions. And it's been really fabulous working with you on this, Anthony, and let's hope we do some more in the future. Oh, no doubt. Thank you for listening. If you like this episode, please subscribe. We'd love to hear your thoughts and responses on social media. Find us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. <laughs>